when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have... Kelly Horsley in, and he currently actually works at the Idaho State Museum, but he worked out here for quite a while. Do you want to tell us, you know, what you did out here, how long you were here for? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I uh, have worked at the Old Penitentiary in varying capacities over the years. Uh, Started out volunteering back in 2016, worked part-time for quite some time, Uh, got a a full-time role out here, but eventually got a uh, a, a new opportunity at the Idaho State Museum, and that is where I currently work. Hey, Kelly, what's going on at the museum? So here at the Idaho State Museum, uh, be sure to check us out uh, on Instagram, Facebook, our website, history.idaho.gov slash museum, and keep up on all of our upcoming events that we've got going on. Excellent. And I, again, I just want to make a tiny little plug for the museum Again, it's so different than the museum we all grew up going to, and it's incredible. Incredible. Like, didn't sure. the the um, the exhibit on the fire in Wallace didn't that win a national award? Yeah, our our big burn um, did get a silver medal at the Muse Awards. Uh, a little bit more about that: uh, the big burn was a 1910 forest fire in uh, North Idaho, burned about three million acres, and totally changed the way that we deal with uh, with with fire management. And we do have uh, an exhibit uh, on that, and it's. Uh, pretty intense come into the museum and and check it out it's so cool guys you should go if you haven't gone go to the museum yeah yeah excellent all right so who are you going to tell us about today well the inmate i chose to focus on for today's story is a man named roger hall the story of his early life and his life in prison as well as his life afterwards is kind of the story of redemption through music The reason that I chose to focus on him is I recently took a trip through the state of Oregon, and um, that was where he grew up and where he had, uh, he actually pastored in five churches all around the state of Oregon. So as I was driving through, I just thought of him uh, on my trip and decided that his story was worth telling on the show. And if it sounds weird that like you think about inmates, like when you're just like in your normal life, like it's not as weird for us um, because we just spend all our time looking at these people. And so like you see stuff around town when like I drive past the uh, the Athlos building where Mary Holmes committed her her fur theft. And you just you just think about them. It's kind of funny to say because, you know, we didn't actually know them, but. I don't know, we they as I think Kelly you know uh, is gonna gonna talk about they kind of gain a little space in our hearts and in our minds so mm-hmm. all right let's hear about him inmates are always on our minds 
All right. So <laughs> I guess uh, the story of Roger Hall begins. Uh, he was born in 1937. He grew up in Sutherland and Roseburg, Oregon. Uh, those are two fairly small towns in Western Oregon. Sutherland's got about 17,000 people today. Roseburg, just over 20,000. From a young age, Hall excelled at guitar. He played primarily country music. He was regularly pulled out of school to perform at events all around Oregon. His inmate file says that he dropped out of school in ninth grade. Hall claims that he was kicked out, but he didn't care because he knew he had a music career ahead of him. <laughs> his parents moved him to California to pursue a career in music. He was featured on Ted Mark's original Amateur Hour on the radio. He also earned an audition for Town Hall Party Talent Time in Hollywood. Unfortunately, I uh, couldn't find a date on these performances, nor could I find a recording. But at age 17, Hall decided to change his image a bit, and he formed a rock and roll band. If you think about this, this was in the mid-50s. Uh, later in his career, he was gla uh, greatly influenced by none other than Elvis Presley. You can see in his mugshot, he kind of has an Elvis, James Dean, Johnny Cash look going on. Yeah. Very, very uh, counterculture of him, it sounds like, mm -hmm. with the rock and roll and the Elvis yeah. and the James Dean. <laughs> Fascinating. Most definitely. He was a product of his times. I guess this brings us, seeing as we're talking about his mugshot now, uh, things took a bit of a turn for Roger. He had a brief stint in the Air Force from April of 1955 to January of 1956 with a less than honorable discharge, as it is noted in his inmate file. Roger Hall doesn't really talk much about his time in the Air Force. We basically just have the information in his file that tells us this information. After the Air Force, Roger went back to playing music. He played at various venues, mostly bars and nightclubs. And it was at this time that Hall began abusing drugs and alcohol. After being involved in a bar fight in Crescent City, California, well, let me back up. First, uh, Hall claimed that he played guitar six nights per week at the Circle H Club in Crescent City. Wow, that's what a gig. That's really cool. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, after being involved in a bar fight, which resulted in a gun being pulled on Roger and his friend Emmett Spencer, the two left Crescent City um, uh, just until things blew over. They took off on the road. Uh, they pulled off the road to sleep near Gooding, Idaho. Gooding is a small town in southern Idaho, current population about 4,000. When Hall woke up in the car in Gooding, he saw his friend talking to someone in a parked car. As things escalated, it became apparent that this was a robbery. Hall's friend Emmett shot the man in the car. Two shots were fired into the man. The man who was killed in this incident was named Dr. John Hunt. Uh, John Hunt was actually driving across the country to accept a job as a professor at Yale. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a tragic oh, end. Imagine. Yale is so prestigious, and yeah. then just these two kids on the side of the road and his uh, anyway so hall was picked up and he was tried for first degree murder uh, even though hall claims he did not pull the trigger it was in fact his friend uh, he could still be charged as he was present for the murder hall was acquitted but he was charged with armed robbery of john hunt hall pled not guilty claiming this was double jeopardy after his acquittal, Hall met a young girl named Sue, who was in a journalism class at Gooding High School, uh, and her class was sitting in on Hall's um, first-degree murder trial. 
Uh, Sue and Roger eventually married before he was sent to the pen. And Sue was pregnant with Roger's son at the time that he began his incarceration. His inmate info claims that he was married with no children, but he later talks about seeing his infant son when Sue visited him. So I think we can deduce that she was most likely pregnant with with Roger's son uh, when, when he was booked at the penitentiary. Sorry, just can we go back to that double jeopardy thing? Um, so he did he try to appeal it on that? Was it denied? Like, was there a or did he just say like this isn't fair because it's double jeopardy and just like didn't like where his lawyer is not? Was there anything you could find on like why it wasn't followed up? This question wasn't followed up on. So based on the newspaper articles that I found. Hall pled not guilty, claiming that the, the trial oh, was a double okay. jeopardy. Okay. Uh, the definition of double jeopardy, of course, is procedural defense that prevents an accused person from being tried again on the same or similar charges and on the same facts following a valid acquittal. So this is kind of an interesting case because he was acquitted on first degree murder, and it is the same case that he was uh, that he was found guilty on robbery charges. But it's not necessarily the same facts, seeing as it, it's it's a different crime. So it makes for a for a very interesting case. I wonder uh, if if he had responded differently, like instead of driving off after committing, well, being involved with the murder and the robbery. And was his sorry? You probably may have said this, and I'm just not paying attention. Was his friend charged with first degree murder, or what did you say his name was? Emmett Spencer. Emmett Spencer was extradited to Florida, where he was tried for killing a Key West shipyard worker. Hmm. Uh, he was also accused of killing a California man in 1959 and a 1959 murder in Bear Lake County, Idaho. What? Spencer was known as the dream killer, as he claimed he recalled dreams where he killed people, including John Hunt in Idaho. Uh, How what? does Roger run into a character like this, a murderer like this? This is dream killer crazy any idea of how many he may have killed they say possibly as many as 36 what wow yeah how do they run into how do you just like run into someone like that okay i think before we go any further it's important that we know that the man that roger hall hitchhiked with here was a serial killer his name was emmett spencer and he had been riding around with this young girl named Mary Kay, who he would later implicate. And actually digging up his story, I came across a prison magazine from Louisiana State Penitentiary called The Angolite, the prison news magazine. And this is from May, June, 1994. It's uh, volume 19, number three. And it actually breaks down the whole story of Emmett Spencer and his trek across the country with this young woman. So kind of skipping ahead here, Mary Catherine Hampton, one of eight children, had an IQ of barely over 70. A ninth grade dropout, she lived at home and helped with the younger children. Dark hair and blue-eyed Mary Kay, as she was called, was attractive, despite being a little on the chubby side. She was 16 in 1958 when Emmett Monroe Spencer breezed into town with a fancy car and a pocket full of cash. Both the automobile and the money later turned out to have been stolen, but Mary Kay didn't know that, and Spencer initially cut a pretty impressive figure in her eyes. He was slimmer and taller than she, and quite a bit older, and he had a quick, glib way of talking that made his attention to her all the more flattering. He was also a rambling but effective storyteller. 
Mary Kay Hampton, bored with home and more than a little aroused by her admirer, left Sandy Hook in May 1959 with Emmett Spencer. The road to adventure and excitement stretched before her. And I found on another uh, website that his skin was yellow and he had a spookiness about him. And Mary's mother tried to stop her from going with Emmett, but uh, Mary left with him. And this is what happens next. What Mary Kay didn't know was that she was running off with an ex-convict. Spencer failed to tell her that he had just been released from the Kentucky State Penitentiary after completing a 12-year term for voluntary manslaughter. She soon began to get a clearer picture of the man she had run away with, and she didn't like what she saw. As they traveled together, she quickly learned that he was a hold-up artist with a propensity towards violence. Within a few months, Mary Kay wanted to leave Spencer, but by then she was pregnant and scared to go home. Besides, every time she talked about leaving him, Emmett threatened he would track her down and kill her, even if he had to go all over the world to get her. She believed he would. He would be very intimidating and persuasive. And so she stayed with him, a frightened, pregnant teenager. During the 11 months that Mary Kay remained with Emmett, they went to Florida, drifted back and forth across the South, and then headed for the Pacific Northwest before returning to the South via California. In Idaho, things turned really ugly. Not far from the town of Gooding, on the edge of the lava-strewn countryside around Craters of the Moon National Monument, Spencer forced another motorist off the road and attacked him for no apparent reason. The facts here are somewhat uncertain. In another version of the story, Spencer stopped when he saw a man standing near a parked car at the side of the road and approached him, map in hand, on the pretext of asking directions. With the help of a hitchhiker, who in this case is Roger Hall, Spencer attempted to rob the man. When the intended victim resisted, Spencer shot him dead. Mary Hampton, sitting in the car watching the senseless murder, became hysterical. Slowly, it was dawning on her that Spencer might be every bit the murderer he had bragged to her he was. The dead man left by the side of the road was John Hunt Jr., a botanist and forester scheduled to join the faculty of Yale University that autumn. The authorities searched in vain for his killer. Spencer and his two companions were by that time on their way to California. Though Roger Hall soon went his own way, Hampton stayed with Spencer, thoroughly under his thumb. They hung around the San Diego area for a while before returning to Florida. Once there, en route from Jacksonville to Key West, Spencer killed two more people, again for no apparent reason. Leon Hamill and Virginia Tomlinson had been planning to marry and spend their lives together. In the end, they did not even die together. Hamill was shot to death at Big Cap at Key, and Tomlinson was stabbed to death near Vero Beach. By then, Mary Kay was truly terrified, fearing for her own life. A couple of times she broke off with Emmett, but helpless alone, she always went back to him. One time she made it home to Sandy Hook briefly. While she was there, another brutal murder was committed in Key West, which also turned out to be Emmett Spencer's handiwork. Indeed, he bragged about it to Mary Kay when she rejoined him in Florida. Shortly afterwards, on April 14, 1960, Spencer and Hampton, with yet another hitchhiker, James Job, were driving near Claremont in central Florida when they were stopped by a state highway patrol officer on a routine traffic violation. Spencer was behind the wheel. When asked to produce a driver's license, he did so. The alert officer noticed that the license looked as if it belonged to a considerably older and heavier person. He confronted Spencer, who appeared nervous. The trooper asked all three to get out of their vehicle. As they walked towards the squad car, Spencer bolted. Job, the hitchhiker, tried to stop him. Hampton started to scream. Spencer made a dash back to the automobile, grabbed a hidden pistol, shot and wounded the officer, jumped into the car, and sped off into the night. 
Hampton and Job rushed to the aid of the police officer, who radioed for backup. After a chase at speeds of more than 100 miles an hour, Spencer was apprehended near Leesburg, about 30 miles away. As he tried to run a police roadblock, some three dozen bullets from a machine gun stopped him. He emerged from the car, hands over his head, with nothing but superficial scratches. Authorities traced the bullet-ridden vehicle and quickly discovered that both it and the driver's license Spencer was carrying had been stolen from John T. Keene, a naval base pipe fitter who lived in Key West. When the police went to Keene's small cottage to tell him they recovered his car, they found him lying in bed, dead. He had been robbed and literally hammered to death. In fact, he had been struck with a ball-peen hammer so many times that it was impossible to count the number of blows. Both Spencer and Hampton were taken into custody. While Spencer kept trying to make a deal with the authorities, Mary Kay Hampton told the terrifying story of her months with Emmett. She made a complete statement, which included details of the murder of John Hunt in Idaho. She told about the murders of Virginia Tomlinson and Leon Hamill. She provided information on an unsolved murder in Miami, the knife slaying of Ethel Little. All Mary Kay's disclosures were verified. When she was released by the Florida police, she returned to Kentucky. On August 24, 1960, Spencer was convicted of murdering John Key and sentenced to die in Florida's electric chair. The key to his conviction and death sentence was Hampton's testimony against him. From there, Emmett Spencer actually got a commuted sentence as he uh, led to the conviction of Mary Kay on several murders. Um, the only evidence that officers had against Mary Kay was his word. She would eventually be released uh, after about six years in prison, and he would just sit on death row for the rest of his life. Okay, so back to the story of Roger Hall. Does what? Roger mention him at all in his oral history? Uh, he does not. Wow, okay. That's Wild. so That's so weird. Yeah, that's really Because Roger is so, like, even though he was involved in this crime, he doesn't seem like he's that kind of person. Yeah. That's crazy. I will say the beginning of the oral history is pretty much inaudible, um, very, very low quality. And the part that you can actually start making out what they're saying is when he starts talking about his life at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Mm -hmm. So he may have mentioned it earlier when he talks about, I mean, I would have to imagine the the oral history began talking about his early life, but uh, yeah, there's no mention of it in his, in his oral history. Wow. Dude. Yeah, this... That Christ free is is so wild. Thirty six, like that's wow. crazy number. Yeah, so I was curious, and yeah, it sounds like a freaking wild time. Yeah, yeah. So that I guess brings us to Roger's time here at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So he was sentenced twenty five years for robbery, again in Gooding County, Idaho. He was received at the pen December twenty second, nineteen sixty one. Brown eyes, light brown hair, and married. Most of the information that we have on Roger's time here at prison uh, is information that we were able to gather from a 1993 oral history by Christine Brady out here at the uh, penitentiary. So Hall tells us uh, his job at the penitentiary was in the hospital, and he also worked in the captain's shack. His job was to go to different yards and find inmates who had visitors. The job title was runner. Uh, the other runner assigned cells to inmates. No, when I first arrived, uh, I worked in the cap shack as a runner. And uh, they would send me to uh, one yard, two yard. I had to go find prisoners that had uh, visitors and so on and so forth. Or if they wanted to send word out to the front for some reason or other and they couldn't call, you know, this type of thing. When I went into the prison hospital, I went in as the janitor because I had 
uh, a life sentence, basically, to do eight years and four months. And the guy that was there already, the nurse, uh, was there for life. But he was wheeling and dealing and, and selling contraband, and he got caught uh, selling some coffee on the yard, and they busted him. And so it took him out of that job and uh, put him in just a regular job. And then a month later, he was paroled for, I think, went home. So. And then I got to be a nurse. Well, I didn't know nothing about being a nurse. I absolutely knew nothing about being a nurse. And they give me a little room there, and all the medical books, you know, dated back to the 1800s, you know. The only thing that was in there was a little book that was called a nurse's handbook. And that's what I studied, but I can remember how scared I was, <laughs> because... I didn't know how to take a blood pressure. I didn't know how to do any of these things. I never had time to learn any of them. No training? No training, no. no. Well, the doctor came on Tuesdays and Fridays, I think it was. His name was Dr. Rigger. He was a, basically did women's surgery here in Russia at that time. And he was really a nice guy. And uh, I learned an awful lot from him. But when he was gone, then it was all my responsibility. And the sick line ran every day. And you would run from anywhere 50 to 100 men every day coming and complaining about different things. So when the doctor would come, I would sit at a table, and the doctor would examine the inmate, and he would say, give so-and-so this and this and this and this. And he'd tell me what it was, and so forth. And uh, so then, every day when the inmate would come, I would dispense the medicine to him, and so forth. But if something happened to an inmate, when the doctor wasn't here, that was my responsibility. Now, the four-story cell houses at this penitentiary are notorious for undesirable temperatures. Uh, It would get unbearably hot the higher you were in the summer, so you wanted a cell on the lower floor in the summer. If you think back to science class, heat rises. So, in the wintertime, you want a cell on a higher level. Hall said a prisoner could get to a favorable cell depending on the season if he had a little money or how well he was in with the guy in the captain's shack. Basically, he was implying that how well you were networked, you could get a good sell by knowing somebody in the captain's shack or paying them off. Well, I mean, that's just generally how life works, frankly. Like, right. It all comes down to who you know. And and this is actually probably a, a similar thing he may have seen in his early days in Hollywood, too, um, where it, it really comes down to who you meet and what contacts you make. And maybe that's why, you know, he didn't go very far is is because he he didn't didn't have those same connections didn't have that networking available very much so it's all about who you know uh, on that note hall did claim that it cost about 100 dollars to get a good sell Jeez. <laughs> back then that was quite a bit of money right inmates could also pay with sex or property oh. <sighs> don't like that one i mentioned hall's job was a runner his job was to find inmates who had visitors uh, regarding Hall's personal visitors, he said he saw his wife two hours per month during his stay here. Uh, he did say that he was able to hold his infant son once on Christmas. Uh, the guards did a favor for him by uh, by letting him hold his infant son because contact visits were not allowed at this prison. Uh, Hall claimed that it was a, quote, startling Christmas present. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, that's that's so sweet. sweet. I see my wife two hours this year. I was here once a month. And I never was able to make any contact with her at all. I never did make any contact with her the whole time I was here. Except I did hold my son. And one of the guards handed him to me real quick. And... Good morning. No. Christmas. Christmas. 
well, it happened so quick, you know, it was a, a strange thing because I didn't expect it because of the fact that there was no contact business. And I just, he called me in and I was walking in and he took her out of my wife's arms and just handed it to me. And he really, he was really taking a chance when he did it. Do you want to identify the guard? Oh, gee, I wish I could. If I'd seen a picture of them, I could tell you their names. Short. Yeah. Not very long. Seconds? <laughs> Ten seconds, and then he took him back. Mm. Uh, Hall claimed he behaved very well while doing time behind bars, uh, kept his head down, did his time. Uh, he refrained from substance use. He followed the rules, but he did claim that he sent smokes and matches to inmates on occasion. Uh, he goes into detail about the use of plumbing systems for inmate communication and contraband transportation, which is a very interesting uh, way of, of getting things from point A to point B. Siberia, the solitary confinement cell block, had a hole in the floor. This was the bathroom for inmates in Siberia. This meant the sewer rotter ran directly underneath these cells in Siberia. Inmates would flush bags of cigarettes or contraband from the toilet in the dining hall just upstream, for lack of a better term, uh, from, the, uh, from the, the sewer water running underneath Siberia. Inmates in Siberia could reach into the sewage through the hole in the floor of their cell and retrieve the bags. Pretty nasty. And there was a hole in the, cor- in the floor, and uh, that's what they used for a latrina. The strange thing about it is they said there was no cigarettes or anything like that allowed to them, but they would get cigarettes and added to them. Tell me how. <laughs> they floated it in on the water from the dining room. They would take and wrap it all up, and they would tie a string out, and they'd flush it down the toilet there, and it'd come right down, and the inmate would reach in and take that. You mean the sewage from the dining hall? Yeah. There were toilets in the dining hall? Yeah. Would and, and open over, sewer underneath yeah, see the, Right, and all of it, see, run. All they did was they found the blueprints, which was not hard, because the inmates did all the work on the buildings, mm-hmm. and the electrical and everything else, so... Once they found out where the sewers run, that was no problem. See, getting smokes into it. The funniest thing I think I see while I was here was there was a wire that they had run from the dining room to Five House down here. And they were getting smokes and that into the inmates down there. And they were running it right over the guard's head. And then they were. <laughs> the wire went from? From the dining room to Five House. To and they run it right over the top of Desperation. So can they hear the flush coming? Is that how they knew yeah. to kind of check? I've always wondered yeah. that. Because I've always heard that, and I I heard it from, like, one of the veteran volunteers that you're like, sometimes they make stuff up. So I, like, stopped saying it because yeah. I never knew where that source came from. And also it sounds horrible. It sounds so gross. It would flush, and some inmates say it would <sighs> flush, like, once a day, but guards regularly said it would flush several times throughout the day and yeah so it was the toilet in the dining hall so like whoever used it then that would just come come down toward them system yeah that would go through the siberia plumbing (laughs) and the inmates in siberia would have to communicate that they wanted something somehow yeah Mm -hmm. um probably through a runner or that's uh, that's the other thing i've always wondered is how they were able to get a message to because siberia is so isolated Mm -hmm. You have to time more, it just yeah, right. Yeah, it's like more so than like the average inmate where you can like get word around the yard because you're allowed mm-hmm. to just like wander. But in Siberia, you're stuck in there 24 yeah. hours a day. So how do you get that word out? If you just have friends on the outside, they're going to show their support of you by sending you these smokes and mm-hmm. things. Like 
I don't, I don't think necessarily they were making an order. I think it was mostly they were, you know, if I'm in here, you're going to flush me some cigarettes and you're going to flush me whatever I need. And that's that was just kind of the, yeah, that. See, I learn new yeah. things every day. Because <laughs> typically, or, you know, if you had, well, I won't say guards were corrupt, but if you had a friend uh, who was a correctional officer, maybe they could have brought something in for you as well. Uh, there was pot, and there was amphetamines, and uh, uh, a lot of times they were trying to make a lot of deals on sleeping pills and, and uh, Valium and Thorazine and things like that. Stuff that was described in prison mm -hmm. hospital? Right. And the other illegal drugs, how did they get in? Guards. That's right. Yes. Well, uh, since we're on the topic of toilets, <laughs> one striking communication <laughs> tool Hall mentioned was the removal of toilet water. Let me explain that a little bit more. Inmates on different levels of a cell block could talk to each other by removing all the toilet water from their, toilet, from their cell toilet. Pounding on a pipe was the easiest way for an inmate to let another inmate know that they wanted to chat. Ring, ring. <laughs> Think of this as your prison ringtone. So one inmate would hear another pounding on the plumbing pipe, and they could talk into the empty toilet bowl through the pipes and could be heard through the other empty toilet bowl. I don't know about you, but that is different than any game of telephone that I played as a kid. If you wanted to talk to somebody from, if you were in the cell block, like over number four, and you wanted to talk to somebody up on the second or third tier, you, know, you could pound on the pipe, you know, and you could dip out the toilet water out of the toilet bowl, and they'd dip out the one on the next tier and the next tier, and you could put your head down, you could talk to the guy up in the next straight up, straight up yeah, just coming through the pipe, and that's how they would communicate so far. I have so many questions about the logistics of that. Like, what do you do with the toilet water? Cause, and then I'm assuming you just, like, get a cup or whatever, and you just are, like, scooping it out, but where do you put it? In the and, sink. Like, yeah. Oh, that's true. I the forget there's a sink in there. I just, I love the idea of, like, four convicts on the first floor with their, you know, ears right around the rim of the toilet bowl. Ugh, gross. Chatting with their buddy up on the third tier, you know? Like, that's, oh, man, that visual is so fun. I, well, and, and having people in the middle, like, hearing this and intercepting right. it and yeah yeah you're like oh i know some stuff it's like the best prison show i can think of <laughs> so good some other aspects of prison life that hall shared uh, was his stance on the death penalty all mm. claimed that at his trial he would have rather the death penalty than 10 to life or 25 years like he got wow. mm. he said he'd rather die than serve time he also expressed his disdain for snitches both in prison and afterward this I, pigeons, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Snitches, you say? This I can understand. I mean, nobody likes a tattletale, let's be honest. Hall had an active role in the church at the pen. Uh, the president of the Bible college would come to the prison once per week. Uh, Hall claims this is how he got started selling Bibles. Uh, after his release, Hall claims he never kept his past a secret. He was very open about his crimes. Uh, he learned from it. He gave his testimony to schools in hopes that others can learn from his story. I never had any problems, <clears throat> and I never kept it a secret. Uh, even uh, the schools where we we lived, I've gone and give my testimony at the schools and so forth, and talk about prisons and drugs and drinking and the whole thing. And uh, my kids go to school there. My kids all knew it. I never had a problem. I lost one job over being an inmate, and that was shortly after I got out of prison. But as far as the job-wise or anything else, it has never affected me at all. And uh, people who say, well, I can't get a job because of this and that, uh, I don't buy them. 
that's a compound. You can do anything that you want to do. You know, and, uh, if you go out there, and that, the thing is that they go out and, and they use all this slang from the prison and so forth, and uh, you know, the prison language and so forth. And uh, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't going to become institutionalized. I made up my mind. After Hall's release in 1965, he continued his love of music and God, kind of melded the two together, and he began recording Christian albums. Uh, he claims that he was offered to uh, record more mainstream music, but he, uh, he denied those chances because he knew that, he would, uh, that they'd want him to sing about things that were not about God. On the back of the vinyl album of When I Met the Master by Roger Hall, the producer, Wesley Tuttle, wrote this inscription. One of the greatest challenges in my ministry came to me during a revival meeting in Caldwell, Idaho in February of 1965, when I first met and visited with Roger Hall. This meeting was unique in that it took place not in the church auditorium nor the pastor's study, but behind the cold gray walls of the Idaho State Penitentiary, where Roger was in the third year of a 25-year sentence. After spending an hour with Roger and hearing of his love of Christ and knowing of his heartwarming singing ability, I made a vow that, with the Lord's help, I would spare no effort in trying to secure his release so that he could take his powerful testimony to all people, especially young people. Praise God, this was accomplished 11 months later. I give thanks to my Lord for the joy of having seen a small cog in the wheel of justice that, through the prayers of thousands of Christians, has seen Roger come out of prison and take his stand for Christ. And I am grateful for the opportunity and blessing of producing this, his first album. Roger says, I am now doing what I have always searched for. It took something drastic to get me here, but now I am doing what God wants. I hope my life will serve as a warning to young people of the trouble they can get into and thus prevent them from falling into the same traps that sent me to prison. While in prison, Roger completed two years of Bible study and hopes to complete his training to become a minister. So aside from, from recording Christian albums, uh, he went on to pastor at five different churches uh, throughout the state of Oregon. And he also traveled around quite a bit, um, uh, giving talks, uh, again, to, to school kids. And um, uh, he would do like a, a guest pastor appearance. Uh, in fact, he did one uh, in Gooding, uh, which is the first time that he returned to Gooding um, after, after his crime. Roger Hall passed away June 6th, 2004, in Sisters, Oregon, in a horse riding accident. Uh, he was 65 years old. Hmm. So, again, this is just kind of a story of uh, a young man who uh, was basically a child prodigy, uh, very, very talented in music, went down the wrong path uh, with uh, drugs, alcohol, crime, made his way to prison, uh, made the best of his time in prison, I would argue, and uh, uh, was released, owned up to his past, and uh, tried to influence younger people by telling his story to them. And uh, again, went on to, to uh, live a life as a pastor and um, did return to his home state of Oregon, where he lived the rest of his life. But you know, you, you, the thing is that you, here's the thing you hear about all these people that don't make it. Over and over again, you hear about inmates who are sent back to prison. Or they robbed this one, so they did that, and so forth. But how many of them do you ever hear about that make it? Yeah, if you went downstairs here, all you got down here in the museum, man, are all of these guys that killed everybody and are terrible individuals and everything else. But have you got anything down there about anybody who made it? See? It's a great topic. Yeah, 
And I, I'm thirty some years. I've made it. You know, and uh, everything speaks for itself. You know? And it ought to be down there. People ought to be able to see that people can be rehabilitated if they want to change. What a beautiful, yeah, nice, interesting job. story. <laughs> thank you for bringing Roger to us. Well, thank you for having me on the show today. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been nice to return to the pen. Yeah. This place does have a high recidivism rate. Yeah. <laughs> that's for that's, sure. I've that's been true. So long. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a boomerang. I keep I keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, Kelly. Well, uh, we always like to end with a our little tag. Do your own time. Do your own crime. Yeah. <laughs> that's two. I love it. Yeah. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, do your own time and uh, do your own number. We'll see you all next week. Thank you so much, Kelly. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you're interested in listening to some recordings of Roger Hall performing, we will have recordings available online in our Facebook group in the coming weeks. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. But if it can help one individual out there, hey, because it's no fun telling my story. It's the hardest thing in the world when I stand up for an audience and tell them, you know, I was tried for murder. And I can't go back and change a lot of things. I can't uh, undo what was done. You know, like with Dr. Hunt and his family. And I can't take away the hurt of losing their, their son, who they love just as much as I love my children. And, and I know how it will affect me if somebody, you know, took their life out here on a desert road somewhere. And, uh, you know, I think about all those things when I'm giving my testimony and, and, and talking about it. But I do it for the purpose of it helps one individual, keeps one individual from ever coming to this place. And then it's well worth it. Because I'm not getting nothing for this. I don't get nothing at these schools when I speak to them. I just give them my time. But that's what it's all about.